0: Let's keep on that Netflix theme, shall we? They report earnings next week, and that's usually a big event for the stock. Let's welcome uh, Geetha Ranganathan. She is the technology and media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's been covering this company pretty much since its inception as a public company. Geetha, thanks so much for joining us here. What can we expect? What are investors really looking for when Netflix reports next week?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Uh Uh, Paul and Taylor for um, inviting me to this conversation. So um, it's going to be a pretty weak quarter for Netflix. They have telegraphed that uh, pretty well uh, to investors. So they're expecting about 1 million editions. This will be the lowest ever for the company in at least 10 years. And really, it's a factor of, of many different things. So you had that massive pull forward of demand from last year because of COVID, when they reported 26 million subscribers in the first half of 2020. That's usually the number that they report for the whole year. Uh, And then you also have now, uh, you know, the the, the additional factor of people going, wanting to go more outdoors and demanding more out-of-home entertainment. And then the third thing that we're seeing is that uh, there was obviously the effect of all those production shutdowns. So they had a pretty light content slate uh, in 2Q, none of their big titles, So it's really the impact of all those three. And so a pretty weak quarter is is what we're expecting in general.
2: With that weak quarter that we're expecting, it seems like Netflix is trying to get ahead of that announcement and help engagement and help penetration by going into video games. What can we expect from Netflix a la video games?
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of been in the offing, I think, for a little while now. Uh, I, and I think it's really a very natural extension of their content strategy. Uh, I think what they're trying to do is to really be a, a comprehensive entertainment solution and really trying to build more and more engagement, as you pointed out, and really more time spent with the platform. Remember a few years ago when, you know, Reed Hastings was asked about who their biggest competitor competitor is, he didn't say Amazon Prime or, or even HBO. He, he pointed out Fortnite as being their biggest competitor for time and attention. Um, so that's really kind of what they want. They want to, you know, increase engagement. They want to increase time spent. Uh, and I think it's, it, it really kind of makes sense. It, it make, it's, it's a huge opportunity for Netflix to be able to differentiate its content offering, boost subscriber engagement, boost retention against all the other streaming players.
0: Keith, talk to us about um, the competitive environment uh, again. Over the last year, you know, we saw a lot of new players on the streaming business. You know, Disney Plus and Peacock, and you know, all the others uh, that are out there. Give us a sense of how it's shaking out in these uh, early quarters.
1: So, um, as you pointed out, Paul, I mean, Disney Plus has been a runaway hit. So they have amassed more than hundred million subscribers in, you know, just a very short span of about just about 13 to 14 months. So they've, they've, it's been a blockbuster success for them. Um, and, of course, as you pointed out, we've had a lot of new players kind of uh, burst onto the screen. But I think we're kind of seeing uh, really this come uh, emerge as, as, a, as a two-horse race, if you will, between Netflix and Disney. But you're also seeing all the other players kind of trying to jockey for scale. So Amazon Prime, did two very big deals just in the space of uh, you know, the past few weeks. They went out and acquired the NFL Thursday night games uh, for about 11 to $12 billion, and then the NDM wow. studio uh, for another $8.5 billion. So again, they really want to make Prime a top-tier service. Then you have HBO Max and the Discovery deal, creating a new company, a $150 billion company. Again, HBO Max wanting to kind of break into that uh, top-tier streaming offering. So we're definitely going to see a shakeout. I think at the end of the day, we're probably going to see about three or four or five major services, Netflix and Disney and Amazon, obviously the top one, two, three, I think, among those. And then it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with, you know, Peacock, what happens with Viacom, Paramount Plus. uh, I think eventually consolidation is on the
2: cards, Mm. uh, but we'll have to wait and watch. There seems to be a push-pull. We feel like there has to be consolidation because you have to be big to compete. And yet we're getting a lot of big antitrust, anti-big tech rhetoric out of this administration saying that they don't like big companies. They want to promote competition. Do you expect deals to get done and and do they get done or are they can be tied up in courts for a while?
1: Yeah, so even with the that, that's a great point. And I think even with the Amazon deal, I mean we have the new you know FTC chair who kind of ex, expressed some reservations about that, but I don't think they're necessarily if you kind of just look um, at the business that you know any of these big tech players are in, I don't think they necessarily pose any competitive challenges, right acquiring a studio, acquiring a media company. Um, Again, I'm not really sure about how long it could be tied up in courts, but I think ultimately, um, you know, if tech players like an Apple or an Amazon wants to go out and acquire a studio, I think they should be able to do so without too much hassle.
0: Keith, real quick, 30 seconds. Is Netflix still a subscriber growth story? I see the stock's flat year-to-date.
1: So they have done a really good job, uh, Paul, in kind of moving away a little bit from that uh, over-focus on subscribers. They're really now focusing more on free cash flows, on margins, and they're showing some real, really good numbers on, on that front as well.
0: All right, Geetha, thank you so much for joining us. As always, you are our guru for all things TMT. Geetha Ranganathan, uh, technology and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Uh, I hired Geetha back in the day. Aww. We worked together for 10 days, ten years, and she has <laughs> just developed into one of the top media and now technology yep. analysts on Wall Street. And we're fortunate to have her and all the other good folks at Bloomberg Intelligence. Let's talk about retail sales. Uh, Got some numbers uh, this morning. uh, Came in better than expected. Retail sales came in at a 0.6% gain versus a forecast of a 0.3% decline. So, pretty strong there. Let's get some details on that and some of the other retail issues out there in the U.S. consumer. We do that with Anji Solanke, National Director for Retail in the U.S. for Collier's International. Joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Anji, thanks so much for taking the time. Love to get your kind of 30,000 foot snapshot on the U.S. consumer right here as we slowly come out on the other side of this pandemic.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's just, just dive in. So what we're seeing right now is definitely in 2020, we saw certain categories in retail, i.e. clothing, uh, certain F&B uh, categories, uh, department and store sales drop anywhere between 20 to 25%. And of course, conversely, we saw the e-commerce jump in rise. Now we're starting to see a shift people are definitely coming back strong as it relates to buying power in store and with that we're starting to see in certain sectors a rebound for example in apparel 47% increase it's the largest increase we've seen thus far in any category and also in addition to that we're starting to see um, store expansion so this is led by the grocery the home beauty and value oriented concepts so New store openings right now are outpacing store closings. We're pretty excited about
2: that. How are consumers feeling about paying higher prices? On one hand, you have retail sales that looked relatively strong today, but then you're seeing consumer sentiment fall because inflation expectations in the next year are expected to be the highest since 2008. Are they willing to pay these higher prices?
3: So there is definitely a concern around that I think because there's this um you know kind of the stimulus payment is starting to slowly fade away so they haven't really put 100% of their mindset into hey we're looking at inflation of some sort in pricing so there's still a spend a strong spend and what we're seeing some that strong spend occur is in what I would say more the service oriented uh, side so going to the massage, getting a massage, going for a pedicure, manicure, getting your hair done um, in the hair salons, et cetera. So we're still seeing that momentum um, when we, I think it will start to fade. Maybe we'll probably see those results closer to Q3, Q4.
0: So Angie, one of the things we saw from this, from the retail perspective during this pandemic is what a lot of folks are saying is just, you know, this accelerating growth of e-commerce and maybe it might've pulled Maybe two or three years' worth of market share gains in terms of e-commerce, in terms of relative to total re- retail sales, maybe pulled it pulled it forward, maybe by two or three years. Is that in fact the case? And and do you think some of those e-commerce gains are here to stay?
3: Um, I don't do not believe they are, they are here to stay. I think they are a part of our shopping journey for any um, consumer. However, what we're starting to see is a bit of a cutback as it relates to. Uh, e-commerce. And our Q2 numbers that we're forecasting are roughly around 13.6% compared to Q2 of 2020. So um, granted, it was kind of an off quarter, but nonetheless, we're starting to see a stabilization. And I think that people are still, there's still, you know, when we look at the square footage in terms of um, per person square footage of retail, it's still pretty significant. People want to be out there
2: are we finding enough workers to come back to work? Good
3: question. Yeah, that that's a great question. Honestly, it's been a big struggle. Some quick things that we've been hearing, especially with chain restaurants and fast casual, what we're seeing in that, you know, in that area is that it has been a struggle. So what are they doing? Well, they've identified some interesting ways to get around it. First off, we're seeing a lot of the chain restaurants um, being quite creative with how they're approaching or how they're getting out there to identify new employees. So we're not seeing too much of an overpaying or um, a, a rise in wages, but we're seeing some interesting things of how they're kind of connecting with, you know, this, uh, you know, the employees. Um, and that's either through TikTok. So a lot of the brands are starting to use TikTok. To um, really get the brand awareness out there, to use that as a, a way of putting out, res- you know, getting resumes in and out um, and trying to tap into kind of that younger set. So that's one. The other thing that we're, we, I found very interesting is that they're actually offering signing bonuses. Some brands are offering signing bonuses um, to get people in. So it's, it's we'll start to see some shifts there, but um, for the most part, specifically when it comes to labor and restaurants. Um, They are still challenged. Uh, We're seeing that with kind of reduced menu offerings, reduced operating hours, etc. And so they have to be creative today.
0: I think some of the retailers were pretty creative during this pandemic. One of them was this curbside pickup. That was a pretty cool uh, thing. I kind of enjoy that. Is that going to stay, do you think?
3: Oh, most definitely. Uh, We're actually starting to see... Um, you know letters of intent uh, requesting or requiring curbside pickup so when I was speaking with a variety of national retailers I said how is that you know helped or not helped having curbside is it an added expense they said not at all it's actually a convenience to our customer and it's another channel of how we can um, provide another solution for that that customer where if they don't feel like they want to come into the store and they just want to pick it up curbside, they have that flexibility, and so that's really important to them. They've seen a lift in sales anywhere between 12 to 15 percent hmm. by having
0: curbside. Yeah, that's pretty uh, pretty interesting. Seeing retailers get pretty creative. Anjali Solanke, National mm-hmm. Director of Retail for in the U.S. for Colliers International, uh, giving us her thoughts on the retail landscape. Uh, again, generally pretty strong as consumer confidence mm-hmm. continues uh, to rebound. Mm-hmm. All right, so we are getting right into the meat of this earnings season. And there's a lot of folks out there to say, boy, these earnings really better come through because when you look at valuations, you can make the argument that uh, a lot of these uh, parts of the market are overextended from a valuation perspective. Josh Wine, Portfolio Manager at Hennessey Funds, joins us. Josh, love to get your thoughts on kind of what you need to see, what you expect to see uh, out of this earnings season here as it relates to, you know, kind of maybe – Earnings and valuations in this market?
4: Yeah, it's good to be with you. I'm, I'm, I have a smile on my face hearing about karaoke and Dolly Parton. That's a great way to start this out. Um, the world's a better place for my not doing karaoke as well. Um, yeah, earnings season, uh, you know, certainly want to see the consumer. So as, as companies roll out earnings, you know, it was very interesting to see bank earnings, and I think it was expected, you know, very strong earnings there. But, you know, we have a retail sales number today that was well ahead of expectations. and things like clothing and electronics and restaurants were, you know, above above average growth and, and ahead of expectations. So, you know, it is what it is, and it would be great to hear, you know, some guidance, you know, what are, you know, companies thinking about, you know, the next quarter? You know, right now we have very easy comparisons to a year ago, but, you know, let's see, you know, what it's going to look like in Q4 when the comparison is, is meaningfully more difficult. And certainly Q1 of next year, uh, it'll be somewhat of a a regular comparison to Q1 of this year.
2: Josh, how are you investing in this time when you get strong retail sales, but then you see consumer sentiment coming really soft given one-year inflation expectations are going back the highest since 2008? How do you take two contradicting factors and invest?
4: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I was looking, you know, the market, you know, 20 times forward earnings, so about a 5% earnings yield against a backdrop of a 1-3 on the 10-year. So, you know, valuations on average are incredibly compelling. You know, they're, they're basically that spread, the earnings yield versus the 10-years where we were before the pandemic started. Uh, that being said, you know, yeah, certainly size matters a lot in this market, increasingly so. So, you know, a Microsoft, a great company, you know, 34 times forward earnings when I see that and and they're growing quite nicely, but I think to myself that the market definitely places a premium on growth. I think more so in the case of a Microsoft, it's not only a great balance sheet, but just the size and the liquidity. So I think that there is definitely a size and liquidity story. And and what gets blocked out by that, by that sun is, you know, kind of mid caps with a similar valuation story and, you know, compelling growth. uh, But certainly the multiples are not there. And I think the you know in that lies a you know a great opportunity.
0: Josh, where are you and your team at Hennessy Advisors uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina? Uh, I don't know why you didn't locate in Durham, the superior University no. down there, but um, <laughs> anyway, what are you and your team doing in terms of work right now? What are the areas you're focusing on?
4: Sure. yeah. so I would point you know in our Hennessy cornerstone midcap 30 fund where we're looking at valuation, earnings growth, and stock price momentum. And and where that leads us is a lot of the consumer names that, you know, don't get the attention of, of, you know, maybe like a Costco or a Starbucks. You know, these are mid-cap names, Uh, companies like Mattel, uh, Big Lots, uh, and Meritage Homes. So, you know, strong free cash flow generating companies, you know, strong balance sheets. Uh, The multiples are interesting to me because I think these are, for the most part, well-known names, but, you know, Big Lots trading at nine times forward earnings, Mattel at 16 times, Meritage at about six times forward earnings. So, uh, you know, I I think that that, you know, value can be its own catalyst, and and I don't think a lot of people agree with that. But I think that these names, they are strong names, and and they will live to see another day. And and at some point, investors will inevitably uh, turn their attention toward these overlooked type names.
2: What is the path forward for interest rates? Is, does it have to go higher from here? How are you thinking about that?
4: Yeah, I think about it a lot. So I've covered equities in, in some way, shape, or form for about 25 years, and I've never paid that much attention to the bond market as much as I do now. Mm-hmm. And first of all, you know, the bond market to me, you know, there might be some, obviously the Fed is gets in the way of maybe true price discovery to a large degree, but the bond market's telling me that maybe we are borrowing some growth from future quarters now that we've reopened and there's this delayed wealth effect. So people are out spending money. And, uh, you know, you see that if you just walk down any, any you know, any street in this country, probably. And uh, so I think that we've been saying for so many years now that rates have to go higher and every year that becomes less and less true. And And so, yeah, I don't think they have to go higher. I think rates You know, versus overseas rates are are somewhat elevated in the United States. And when I look at overseas markets and economies, they are in no, they are not nearly in as good a shape as we are here in the United States for the most part. So I think that we have a lot to contend with overseas and in emerging markets. And I don't know how sustainable things could ever be if we don't get those economies reopened and and functioning properly. So, you know, I'm not going to make any prediction on the 10 year or bonds in general. But, uh, you know, I don't think rates have to go higher at all. And I think they could go a little bit lower.
0: Uh, all right, Josh, thank you so much. We appreciate that. <clears throat> as always, Josh Wine, he's a portfolio manager at Hennessey Funds, giving us uh, his thoughts on the market uh, here. it uh, he remains bullish here, but earnings coming in uh, fast and furious will continue next week. We had the banks this week, as Josh mentioned, coming in pretty darn solid, but we're going to have some tech We're going to have some consumer names uh, next week. That will continue the narrative on earnings and this market. This is Bloomberg. Looking at Moderna here, stock is up 9.8%, all-time high, $284. Uh, It's sporting a market cap of $114 billion, included today in the S&P 500. Of course, uh, manufacturer of the Moderna vaccine, which has been so successful for so many uh, patients for this uh, COVID. Let's get a sense of what's going on at this company that's now, you know, probably started the, you know, tw- two years ago. Nobody really knew about it. Now it's a household name. John Murphy, he's a pharmaceutical analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in London. He joins us. John, tell us about this company. Give us a 30,000 foot overview of what this company really is. We know it as, you know, a manufacturer of a very effective vaccine, but give us a sense of what this company is about.
5: Sure, yeah, nice to join you. you actually, you, you summed it up very nicely. We hadn't really heard about this company, had we, a couple of years ago. Now, it has been around since 2010, but only came to market in 2018. And it was, a, I guess, a bit of a minnow then, although at the time it created a splash because its IPO was $7.5 billion. So for a biotech, that that was quite significant. So mRNA-based um, vaccine focus, looking at a number of different infectious diseases, you could argue they maybe got a little bit lucky or got a big leg up when COVID came along because clearly there was a lot of cash that, that came their way. But they have for, for a number of years been looking at areas such as flu, RSV, cytomegalovirus. So really looking to, to develop um, a broad pipeline of, of vaccines in the anti-infective space. And again, as I said, they clearly benefited from, from COVID here in terms of getting an acceleration in development. And I guess the question now is, after COVID, where, where do things go?
2: That is the question. What is the future for this company? We had a great conversation earlier this week talking about using that mRNA technology for cancer, for HIV. I mean, the hopes here are so high.
5: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and, and you know what? Sometimes I think, um, and, and it's kind of natural, that, that when you see a new technology, expectations initially are high, they get, they, then they get a little bit disappointed, if you like, when when these high expectations aren't met. And now we're kind of going up to that that peak again. So I think if you look at the anti-infective areas, again, as I mentioned, the likes of flu, RSV, cytomegalovirus, these are probably more realistic in the next three to five years to see them come out with a product. I'm pretty long in the tooth, and I can tell you, 20 years ago, we were talking about cancer vaccines. We've not seen them come through. I wouldn't be betting my money on, on cancer delivering something there. HIV, again, looks like a pretty difficult area. But although maybe not, not, as, not as sexy, not as attractive, RSV, cytomegalovirus, these are 5 to $10 billion markets. So, so very, very large from that perspective.
0: All right, I'd love to talk to you about the the economics of the vaccine. I'm looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg Terminal, which gives the income statement balance sheet, all the good stuff you would need for financial analysis on MRNA, uh, which is the Moderna symbol. $800 million in revenue in 2020. In 2021, analysts estimate $18.6 billion. Is that's, all of that right, the yeah. vaccine? Talk to us about the economics for Moderna of this vaccine. They're not giving it away, are they?
5: It, it- it, it is all the vaccine, yeah. That, that is essentially that is essentially 100%. You're absolutely, that is the vaccine. And I think the big question as well, because as, as you said in your introduction, you've got, you got a stock here, it's $114, $115 billion market cap. What is the sustainability of that income? So can we factor into our numbers? What it's going to do, is it going to do $20 billion again next year, for example, give or take? The company says it can do. And then what happens in the couple of years after that? In terms of, in terms of the, actual, um, the actual economics, they don't release or tell you exactly what they're charging, but you can estimate it's 20 to $30 a shop here. Um, and, of course, they're going to have some associated costs, marketing costs. They've got the R&D costs, but it's going to be relatively profitable for them in the high-income markets, certainly. But like a lot of, lot of their competitors, uh, this is being provided at cost to the low-income markets and COVAX, for example.
2: You know, John, I'm smart enough to know that I should not be going toe to toe with Mr. Paul Sweeney on level two income (laughs) statement analysis for the CFA. What I can ask you, though, is take us away a little bit from fundamentals. And you have a stock that's now included in the S&P 500. What are you hearing from? We know the portfolios that track the S&P that now have to buy the stock. How much of that is also included in a move that's now up 10% on the day?
5: Yeah, no, I I think you're exactly right. And I think that's exactly what what it should be linked to, today's move. I think we've seen it before because you get the fact that there's a number of indexed passive funds. You've also got mutual funds, for example, that index themselves against the S&P. And you guys have no better than me, but I understand there's in excess of $10 trillion that is indexed or benchmarked to the S&P. Now, not all of those have to go out and buy the stock today. But again, we've seen it before. You get a spike for the first couple of days and then it normally settles down. Maybe with Moderna, because we've had this phenomenal run, maybe it doesn't settle down as quickly. But that's you—that's certainly what you do tend, tend to see.
0: Hey, John, MRNA technology, that's now entered the lexicon for a lot of people uh, as we've kind of dealt through this pandemic. Give us a sense of who the players are here besides Moderna. And, you know, is this, is this something that we need to pay attention to going forward, this technology?
5: yes i think that's a really important question a great point to bring up and the the reason for that is the there was a lot of talk about this there's a lot of buzzwords go around in in pharmaceuticals in science and they talk about new technologies and what they're going to deliver and a lot of times there's a lot of a lot of talk but they don't tend to deliver now, now this is absolutely not the case here, but we've really got two leaders here. We've got Moderna on one side, and we've got Bio- uh, BioNTech, the German company with whom Pfizer uh, is partnered. They're the two leaders. They're a long way out. And it's interesting, there's a lot of others um, ma- making moves or saying we want to get involved. Pfizer themselves have said they might start up their own, their own area. Glaxo have mentioned it. Sanofi have mentioned it. But it takes a number of years to, to really get, get, uh, get to understand the technology, make the appropriate investments. So at the moment, these guys are out on their own. How much of a lead? Maybe four to five years of a lead, something like that. But, but clearly it's an area that is going to be super important going forward for vaccines.
2: Finally, just quickly here, I'm thinking, what does this mean for other sort of biotech companies that are also racing along with Moderna and, and you sort of have these big pharmaceutical companies that are making big bets on some of these unprofitable companies at the time, but all, all they need is is one big grand slam.
5: Yeah, I'm guessing, you know, the the drug companies, the investors, all of us, right? If we're looking at things like that, if you can if you can pick out pick out that grand slam, absolutely, and that's why a lot of companies are, are, are paying huge amounts. and some, some cases, people would say overpaying for, for new technologies. Right. It's, it's not easy to be able to pick out, unfortunately. So I think this is great for the sector. Uh, going in today, it gets people to focus on a sector that maybe they've right. not looked at before.
0: Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your insight and expertise. John Murphy is a pharmaceutical analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in London, giving us the latest on Moderna. This is Bloomberg.